3: Live from the Nasdaq market Site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Steve Grasso, Jeff Mills, Nadine Turman, and Victoria Fernandez, chief market strategists at Crossmark Global Investments. Tonight on Fast, Intel on the outs. share seeing their biggest drop since July of last year. But where is the stock and the rest of the semi-sector going from here? The chart is joining us to lay it all out. In steely-eyed gains, Cleveland Cliffs soaring nearly 13% after earnings so what's next for the steel producer and what's it mean for the rest of the pack? Plus, getting grilled. The headlines that sent Beyond Meat shares plunging today by one of our traders is making a bet that there's even more indigestion to come. Well, we start off with a great consumer comeback. Shares of American Express soaring more than 5% after its earnings report this morning. The stock posting its biggest gain since last November, sitting, uh, setting an all-time closing high today. The company saying card member spending hit a record in the quarter, nearly $8,500 on average. So is this a sign that the American consumer is back and better than ever? Jeff Mills, what do you say?
4: I think they've been back for a while. I know that I've talked about the strength of the consumer, the the heightened savings rate, all of those things that I think can power demand as we move into 2022. And, and yeah, I mean, this was all good news. Spending volumes were up, loan balances were up. And I think you saw it in some of the macro data today, too, not just Amex. So We got services pmi today that was strong this morning so you're seeing this transition from good spending to service spending i think that's important when trying to figure out where the strength of the consumer is going to be pointed specifically to amex this is a stock though that historically traded maybe 14 times earnings now trading at 20 times maybe a little bit higher so i think some of the good news is in amex at this point Uh, when i think about general retail you can look at names like Gap and Urban, Kohl's. These have all gotten pretty cheap at this point. Even Target has come in. But I think, I know I've been kind of the value cyclical voice for a long time, but I'm starting to look toward kind of mid-2022, seeing a little bit of a slowdown perhaps in the economy. And I think the macro environment is going to have a big impact on the style bias uh, across the market, but particularly in retail. So I want to favor stocks with some secular tailwinds and, and growthier names, Uh, as I move into next year so I think about names like Lulu and Nike you know they tend to trade kind of one for one with each other versus names like Kohl's and Gap which kind of trade together so I would point my attention toward Nike and Lulu and names like that as you move into next year just because I think they have better growth trends behind them I think they've kind of nailed digital and direct to consumer a little bit more firmly so that's where I'd be focusing my attention
3: Nadine, do you think that uh, Amex and and its users speak to the general um, U.S. consumer? I mean, typically they tend to be higher income consumers. And I'm wondering if you can actually connect the dots between that and broader consumer spending.
5: Sure, Mel, I think you've seen broader consumer spending, but you're making a great point, which those at the higher end have been spending more. So you saw it here with Amex in terms of travel and entertainment, also goods and services. But one thing we're also noting is that there's been so much hype about not having product for Christmas or other holidays, and so people have been buying ahead. So that's one thing that we're gonna be watching. The other thing on Amex is that card member engagement costs were up. So we have some concerns about how some businesses are paying for that growth. And I agree with Jeff. I think that I would trim this one at this point and look to more growthier names. So I like something like Square. It's got a large, untapped, addressable market, strong growth characteristics. Obviously, it's a scale leader in the point of sale systems. It's also got its cash app. It's got you know it's going after afterpay, um, so it's going to give them a commerce capability that's going uh, to sorry boost its utility to both the merchants and the consumers. So we like that. When you can find something where there's many ways to win, I think Jeff makes a good point. You're going to want to be paying up for growth if you're going to see growth slowing down next year. I think the pull
3: forward aspect is interesting. I mean, personally, I've been buying since February, so I mean, I know for <laughs> I pull forward by a lot, um, but Victoria. It, This is Q3 numbers. I mean, we haven't seen the brunt of the price increases for energy, for instance, price increases for almost every single good that you would buy out there. And I'm wondering if you think there will be an impact ultimately on consumer spending that we have not seen yet.
6: You know, Melissa, I think there will be an impact, but it's gonna be longer lasting and we're gonna to have to see these stickier prices for a while before I think it actually impacts the consumer and their spending habits. We look right now and the strength of the consumer, look at savings, savings is up, wages is up, you've got a labor market where the quits rate is high because people are leaving and finding higher paying jobs. And if you look at some of the earnings calls that we've had over the last couple of weeks, I mean, look at the banks, what did those CEOs say? loan growth is bottoming. They were seeing credit card um, charges going higher. We saw it from consumer CEOs talking about demand is strong for the consumer. And as you head into the holiday season, I think you have consumers willing to pay up a little bit more, especially if we're in a situation with the supply chain issues like we are currently. So I like the consumer facing stocks. I guess I'll take the baton from Jeff on the value and the cyclical names. Um, We like some of those. We like a Target. We like a TJ. KX. We do like Lulu as well. But some of these consumer facing names, even a name like CVS, as people are out shopping a little bit more um, in the holiday season and running errands more, we think the consumer is strong and they're going to stay that way. So this is a good way to balance out your portfolio from some of those growth names you've had for a while.
3: Everybody likes the U.S. consumer, Grasso. Do you?
7: You want me to be negative now? No, so, I, don't want to, so, I want I you to be you,
3: Grasso. <laughs>
7: <laughs> oh, I'll let Grasso be Grasso. So here, here's the here's the issue. First of all, the thing that sticks out to me is what do you buy in February that p- the sizes are going to change from February to December? How can what you? What mean the sizes? The sizes if you, so if I bought you a sweater, uh, you're are different are you size for from kids? February. I mean. <laughs> my, my, my kids, my, my, one of my sons grew four inches in the, in the last seven months. So you can't, you definitely can't buy for All your right, kids. Fine. And I you don't know if you're out. buying for your husband, but taste change. But anyway, uh, dare I digress. So let's go back to Amex. Amex to me means what you said, high-end consumer. But what does it also mean? Corporate cards. It means corporate travel. So I take away, everyone went sort of a different direction I went immediately to Delta or United. For me, if the corporate traveler is coming back or if corporate corporations are spending more, I think that's going to be the canary in the coal mine mm-hmm. in a good way. The other, the other thing that you look at uh, with these names, you got to go high end. So to your point, I go Capri still. You get your Jimmy Choo, you get your Michael Kors with Capri. All of its co- uh, competitors are doing well, well, right? So you don't go department stores you have Macy's is up 132%. So that one was taken out with, uh, with the pandemic and it was thought to not survive. So people are saying, all right, are they going to survive? Or are they going to be just as good? I, I don't know. I would be a seller of Macy's with both hands, urban outfitters. That's a name that no one mentioned that one looks to me like it wants to break out. So The other thing, the last thing I should say, is that people have been bunkered down for basically two years. They haven't been spending. So they have a ton of money to deploy on their families. So I think the consumer is going to be strong straight through next year. Forget about Christmas, straight through next year.
3: I think the aspect of luxury that Grossman mentions, Jeff, is interesting. Um, and, and if you want to I mean, take a look at luxury, I would think that you would have to sort of take a hard look at where they're getting a lot of their sales because a lot of the European luxury names have gotten hit hard because of concerns about Evergrande and China, as well as spiking energy prices there.
4: Yeah, no question about it. And that's why I think, you know, it, it's not necessarily a one size fits all story here relative to the consumer, and you have to understand where sales are coming from. And you've seen different trends relative to people being willing to spend here in the U.S. versus in Europe. Obviously, COVID trends different, vaccination trends different. So I do think you have to be somewhat targeted. But at the same time, uh, I think a couple people have mentioned it so far, but it is that luxury, high-end brand recognition. I really do think that's where you want to be. You know, when I look out at the retail space, you know, I see a couple of the big brands. We mentioned the Nikes and companies like that. When you get down below it, I see things becoming more and more fragmented. I know when I'm doing my own shopping, I'm getting ads targeted on Instagram and other places looking for athletic wear. you know, I think about some of the, the big brands first, but then there are so many other companies that I've tried recently, so I feel like my sales are getting more and more spread out. And I think you're probably seeing that trend across the consumer base as well. So I think you have those top luxury recognizable brands, and then you have everybody else.
3: It is easier to try new brands these days, Nadine. Um, because of the internet. You can order just one little thing from here, another little thing from there, and you don't have to go all in with the shopping cart at a Macy's, let's say. So there, I mean, the fragmentation, I see it also in my in my own shopping.
5: I think Jeff is right, and your patterns are right, is that, I've got three kids in my house and they're ordering from different places. They have different styles. Things have occurred after the pandemic. But I wanna go back to luxury for a point that you made, Mel, which I completely agree with. And that is there's going to be conspicuous consumption issues over in China. So brands that are, I guess, more subtle on the high end are doing better than those that you have you know, something like a brand splashed all over it. And we haven't seen yet what type of restrictions are going to be put in place. So even if a company doesn't have a lot of sales in China, there could be a headline risk. And obviously there's a lot of luxury companies that have a lot of sales in China. So we like to differentiate between those two and also understand how subtle is the luxury. So we prefer those names that have more subtle luxury. All right, coming up, Intel erasing all its gains for the year after
3: its earnings report last night. But one of our traders is seeing a big long-term buying opportunity for the stock right now. We'll find out why. And later in Options Action, we're gearing up for a big week of earnings with everything from Apple to Exxon on deck. How would you be playing those names? Much more Fast Money right after this.
2: Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy.
3: Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Intel falling more than 11 percent today after the company's disappointing earnings report. But does this bode poorly for the rest of the chip sector? Let's get a Carter worth of worth charting to break this down. Hey, Carter.
8: Hi there. Well, I mean, it can be examined a couple of ways. But before we look at the charts, the real truth is that Intel's weakness, I think, is idiosyncratic. Semis are not all that exciting as a theme, as an area of the market but what's going on in Intel is truly specific to it. Uh, Let's look at a few charts. The first, this is a two panel chart and what it depicts is Intel on the top going back to the mid 1990s and it's relative performance to the SOX index on the bottom. And what you see, and there's no way around this is that Intel has been underperforming since the peak in 99, fairly consistently. We also know this, that Intel right now its all-time high was $75.60 back some 20 years ago, and it's trading at almost half that. Uh, there's something wrong with this particular chip maker, whereas that's not the case with semis as a theme. Take a look at the next two-panel chart. So this is same setup, something on the top versus something on the bottom. In this case, the something on the top is the Sox index right? The uh, broad measure of semiconductor and chip companies. And look at the relative performance to the S&P on the bottom. Since 2008, and that's important, semis bottomed in 08 relative to the S&P. The S&P made new lows in 09, as we know. Semis have been outperforming. And th- the amazing thing here is they still haven't even recouped um, their performance since the dot-com peak. And just to look at semis overall final chart, this is simply... The Socks, as we know it, I would call that a sort of benignly bullish. It's an uptrend, not a particularly robust one, but it has responded to its 150-day moving average repeatedly. And on the week, semis were better than the S&P. Semis were better than the QQQ. Semis were better than the Russell 2000. And that's with Intel being down so badly. Mm -hmm.
3: Carter, thank you. We'll see you in a few minutes on OA. Carter Braxton-Worth, are worth charting. Um, The charts look pretty grim as outlined by Carter, Victoria, but you think this is a long-term opportunity, why?
6: Yeah, we really do. I mean, Intel's not our only exposure in this space. I mean, we do have allocations to Broadcom, NVIDIA, Texas Instruments, so it's not that we're all in um, on Intel for this space, but we do think there's some opportunity here. When we look at what Pat Gelsinger has laid out, his plan going forward, we know everything has to kind of go right for this to to you know be positive for the stock, but we think we need to give him a little bit of time to make this happen. We think some of the, the disappointing news from the earnings and what we've seen over the last couple of quarters is already priced into the stock. And when we look at our models for our large cap core strategy, we have the qualitative, like the fundamental components of it, and we have a values-based component. And when we take the Russell 1000 Intel actually is in the top 10% from both of those sides of our model, the qualitative and the values based. So it makes sense to add it at a small component into our portfolio. And this is why we think longer term, if the CEO can turn things around and do what he thinks he can do, it's a positive for your um, for your holdings. And we think the risk reward is enough to go ahead and take that chance.
3: There are a lot of ifs in that bull case, Victoria, even for a small portion um, in your portfolio. So, Nadine, how would you weigh the opportunity costs of of devoting money to Intel over maybe some other semiconductor stocks at this point, which Carter has said look better?
5: Well, Mel, what I just learned is that Victoria is much more patient than I am. So management (laughs) at Intel is executing a turnaround that's going to take, I think, a lot longer than anybody thought and they're probably losing some share to competitors in the process. So I don't like those kind of trends. I think you're spot on, you know, it's, you know, you can find value elsewhere. We like a Japanese company called Tokyo Electron. They obviously don't compete directly with Intel, but they're in better spaces. They just held a, a day on, what, October 12th uh, for investors, and they're steadily becoming a leading global company. They covered areas across their tech, environmental initiatives, a bunch of ESG initiatives, and they're targeting with all their ESG costs, you know, margins about 30%. And so I like that type of business where you're seeing growth, you're seeing improvements. I can get it now. I don't have to be patient like Victoria is. So I just prefer to go elsewhere. But I hear her that there's probably value along the way. I'm just not as patient.
3: Grasso, your quick take.
7: Yeah, so the quick take is Intel. Intel can be shocking and exciting, too. It ran from December to about April. It ran 51 percent. Not to say that it's going to do it again. But I would play the, the favorites. I would play the NVIDIAs. I would play the AMDs, both of which the charts are looking double toppy. But if they break this level right here, they
3: both break out. Coming up, we've got a double dose of stock movers for you. We're breaking down the monster moves in Cleveland Cliffs and Beyond Meat. That's coming up after this quick break. Fast Money's back in two.
0: Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Writers click, 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 click. block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.
3: Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Cleveland Cliffs topping the tape, posting their best day since June. The steelmaker reporting better than expected earnings for the quarter also gave positive guidance for steel prices. Um, Jeff, you're watching this one.
4: Yeah, we saw some reports earlier in the week on U.S. steel that put this one on my radar a little bit, and I think. Cleveland Cliffs is a little bit unique in terms of of their revenue model. So Goldman Sachs had a double downgrade of U.S. steel. They went from overweight to underweight. They talked about um, the investment cycle, the pressure on the free cash flows, and really just the pressure on steel prices next year and how that's likely to affect their business model. I think with Cleveland Cliffs, you have... A little bit of a different story because they're less exposed to steel spot prices. If you listen to the earnings call, they talk a little bit about how they renewed a number of their fixed price contracts with big customers. And they actually think their average selling price in 2022 is going to be higher than 2021. You know, something different than a lot of the other steel producers. So um, I think you could actually see this one make new highs pretty shortly.
3: All right. Meantime, we got a big buzzkill for investors to chew on. Beyond Meat seeing its worst day in almost a year after lowering revenue guidance for the third quarter, the stock closing at its lowest level since May of last year. Um, Victoria, as I understand it, you've got a small short position on Beyond Meat. Do you still have that position? Have you closed it? And uh, how much pain do you think this one will feel?
6: Yeah, we still have our short position in Beyond Meat. And look, when you look at this company, it's not that we don't think plant-based products aren't going to do well and they're not going to have a growing share because we think they will. But Beyond Meat does not have any kind of proprietary formula. They don't even do their own manufacturing. I mean, it's almost like their competitors do their manufacturing for them. Um, And when you look at comparisons between a Beyond Meat and maybe like an Impossible Foods, just in the, the texture of the food and the taste of the food, Impossible Foods seems to do much better with consumers than Beyond Meat. And if a competitor like, let's say Tyson, decides they want to play in this space, I think they can do it easier, quicker, and cheaper than Beyond Meat. So that premium price that is built in um, to that stock. We just don't think it's worth that. We think we're gonna continue to see the stock go down so our short position remains.
3: I thought that was a proprietary pea protein isolate formula. I say jokingly. (laughs) Nadine, how do you feel about Beyond
5: Meat? Well, we've been shorted in the past. I'm not shorted right now. One of my issues is that it's a consensus short. In my view, it's got 26% short, at least that's what Bloomberg's telling me right now. So I think you just got to be a little bit careful on the technicals. But Victoria's right. And what I really didn't like is about this pre-release here is that they cited so many factors for the disappointment. You don't even know where to look to due diligence first because there's too many of them. And then they didn't give any guidance to say, hey, and these things aren't gonna, are going to stop now. So instead, they've left this lingering concern out there that all these worries that they're pointing to that affected their numbers today are going to continue to affect their numbers tomorrow. So on that point, I, I agree with Victoria, you're probably going to see continued pain, but the technicals give me worry to stay in a short like this.
3: Yeah. Grasso, how are you feeling about Beyond? Yeah, I, I
7: don't like it. I, I never liked it. So I missed it on the way up. And I, I always thought it was not a really healthier uh, alternative. It's loaded with fat, loaded with sodium. And, and just picking up on, on what Victoria said, I've always believed that Tyson is a better bet here. I believe they're going to come up with their own channels. And they ha- already have the distribution channel in place. That one's up 28% year to date. I'd stick with that over
3: beyond. All right. It is time for a final trade for this Friday. Fast money. Let's go around the horn. Victoria Fernandez.
6: I feel like I should support Intel, but I'm actually going to go with Goldman Sachs. We've got yield curve rising. We've got loan growth going up. I think Goldman is a great way to play that.
3: Nadine Terman.
5: Ice. They've got exposure to commodity volatility and a strong and sticky data business. They're raising prices, but I'd wait to get closer to 127 spot five.
3: Steven Grasso, Olin, it's, been, it's not my
7: final trade. Olin has uh, outperformed. It's up 129%, but I'm going to go with
3: DOW. That one's only up 5%. I'm looking for the catch-up trade there. That's like against the rule. You gave two stocks, and it's one stock in the final trade. It's final trade singular. <laughs> Jeff Mills, play by the rules. What do you say? Final trade singular. <laughs>
4: So here's the value guy slowly becoming a growth guy. We all know the story. Slack, they're currently servicing less than 20% of the global market. Salesforce has been stuck for about a year. It looks like the stock's going to reassert itself here for CRM.
3: All right, that does it for us for Fast Money for this week.
1: Hey there, Mad Money fans. I'm Carl Quintanilla. Kramer's off tonight, but you're in luck. We are live at the Nasdaq market site here in Times Square for a bonus hour of Fast Money. With us, Steve Grasso, Jeff Mills, my co. Coming up this hour, social anxiety, snap, plunging more than 26% today. Is it putting Facebook and Twitter on notice as those two companies gear up to report next week? We'll break down the trade. Plus, the great bounce. China Tech turning a big quarter this week. One of our traders says this rebound is for real, how he's playing it. And then later, pain at the pump. Gas prices on the rise nationwide. Oil surging to a seven-year high. We're going to drill down on the big move. But we'll start with the big week ahead for earnings. 30% of the S&P and a third of the Dow report next week. As it stands right now, Thursday, the busiest day of the season. Tech will be front and center. Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft are all on deck. It's roughly $9.2 trillion in market cap reporting in the week ahead. What is the setup going into this monster week of earnings? Steve, what's it look like?
7: Yeah, so, Carl, all these names, and you're very familiar with them with your, with your midday show uh, that revolves around tech. The market has been pushed to, the, uh, to all-time highs on the back of tech and just a handful of names. And those names have really hit a wall uh, you know, recently in the last couple of months. And then they just sort of caught fire again. Uh, A name like uh, Microsoft is up 40% year-to-date, but really still is a favorite in everyone's portfolio. Switch gears, though. Apple used to be everyone's darling, and now everyone's worried about supply constraints. I think those are overblown. So I think Apple is going to exceed expectations going forward in the next couple of months, and that will be a great investment for people.
1: Uh, Facebook is always...
7: Yeah, go ahead. go ahead, ahead, Steve. So so Facebook and and I'll wrap it there. Facebook has always been able to defy uh, the laws of gravity. Is it going to do that again, Carl? I don't know. I think at this point there's too much coming down the floodgates for Facebook to yet again just shrug it off.
1: Yeah. Mike, I mean, that's one thing that we are beginning to pick up even in a pretty good earnings season so far. That is that the vulnerability kind of comes from technology, whether or not it's, uh, you know, the the impact on yields, certainly regulatory pressure, the changing business model, which Snap obviously made clear today. Do you think that's going to be the weak spot?
9: Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, it's interesting in Facebook's case. I mean, let's just start there, because obviously that's one of the names where it's facing some headwinds. I think we've been talking about that obviously for a couple of weeks now. There's a lot of sort of negative uh, news, negative press, if you will, about about Facebook. And, you know, you can tie that, though, to a relatively cheap valuation if you could ignore all of that news. And I think what that's going to turn into is is earnings is probably not going to be a hugely pronounced event for it, because. It has already experienced a weakness. We see that in the valuation, and that's basically based on those headwinds which are not going to be cleared up by earnings. Um, so I, you know, I kind of am not really looking for a whole lot out of Facebook. Of course, it has a market impact simply because of its size. Where Microsoft is concerned, uh, there are, you know, I'm obviously, I remain you know, fairly bullish on Microsoft because I think they're doing everything right. They're in all the right places. Amazon, I think I'm relatively positive uh, there as well. Uh, you know, we just talked about it in the previous half hour, though, that uh, I think Carter Worth was also talking about that Google maybe has a limited upside at this juncture just going into uh, into year end.
1: Yeah, I, w- I wonder, Jeff, if you agree and if you see that as a, a function of the changing dynamic regarding fees, Apple iOS, just the this sort of creeping sense that tech is becoming wa- a series of walled gardens across the board.
4: Yeah, there's so much going on, it's a little bit hard to triangulate it all, and obviously it's different within each individual company. We'll talk about Snap and we'll talk about Facebook a little bit later in terms of some of the recent issues uh, with Apple and and the data tracking. But you, you mentioned yield, so let me just go back to that really quickly and take this from a macro perspective. Uh, You know, I think that moving past earnings into 2022, and I think this is kind of an unpopular point of view at this point, that the cyclical dynamics are actually a really good setup for technology and for growth. I think as we get into next year, you're going to see leading economic indicators start to roll over. You're going to see demand slow a little bit in the economy, just as you're starting to see some of these supply chain issues work themselves out. So I think you see inflation peak, and without the Fed raising rates, what usually happens is interest rates follow PMI's lower, and that ends up being a pretty good environment for a lot of these stocks. I think if you want to be somewhat defensive about it, um, you know, again, maybe unpopular given everything that's going on, but I think Facebook still sort of fits the bill there because you want to still differentiate between growth companies that are making money and growth companies that aren't. Uh, Mike mentioned it, but I think Facebook is probably, uh, arguably, the most undervalued fang, at least at this point in time, And when thinking about some of the digital ad issues and and the targeting, Facebook's probably the last company to get cut in in small business budgets. At least that's my guess. And you also have a wider range of customers. So some of the supply chain issues that have been mentioned, at least Facebook is casting a wider net. So some of those businesses are going to have issues. Some of them are not. So again, hopefully helping the ad spend there. And then I just think longer term uh, with augmented reality, virtual reality, the metaverse concept, All of these things, I think Facebook is investing in properly. So um, I actually like the setup, given all the negativity around that name. I
0: think
1: that's interesting, Steve. I mean, a couple things on that point. One is uh, Morgan Stanley had some amazing numbers on just CapEx, the CapEx cycle that we're in in the United States, the strongest since the 1940s. A lot of that surrounds technology and intellectual property. You can sort of see how that ties into the pandemic as corporate IT departments reinvent themselves. But I wonder if you are willing to sort of look through this period of potentially higher inflation and the pressure that the Fed's going to come under in the hopes of catching it on the rebound in the middle of next year?
7: Yeah, so that's an interesting question because I, I like Jeff, have switched my portfolio and added a bunch of value plays. And, and uh, th- that was done specifically because I thought we were going to be in a rising rate environment. Rates hit a wall at one74 four specifically the 10-year, the Carl. And now we seem to have hit a wall again around that level. Uh, we, we haven't breached that level again. So I think taper is going to be well, uh, greeted with welcome arms when it eventually happens uh, at, at year end, if it does happen at year end. But I believe Jeff's right. I think that we're going to see inflation subside. I think we're not going to... You know, you've been around this market a, a long time. I, I've been around this market as well. And it always is sets up to hurt the most amount of people at the same time. So what I mean by that is if that rates don't skyrocket and they actually start to come back in, that's great for technology. That's great for growth. That's not great for value. So I'm going to have to make a decision, as a lot of investors are, in the next couple of months as to where we switch gears but i think ultimately it's a positive for the overall market
1: Wow, that's going to be interesting especially going into the fall Guys, let's uh, look at more uh, shares of Snap today. The social media giant, of course, plunges more than 25 percent after reporting last night. company warns of a slowdown in growth due to changes in those Apple iOS privacy rules. News sent the entire social media complex into the red. Did Snap shoot a warning flare into the sky as names like Facebook and Twitter gear up for next week? Let's bring in Gene Munster, partner at Loop. Gene, happy Friday. Good to see you. Hello. Um, So I heard a couple things. One is that there's an obvious uh, negative halo off of the Snap news. The other was that, look, they're very domestic focused. Unlike Facebook, uh, they're highly reliant on Apple and not so much on the Facebook side. Directionally, how did you respond to last night's news?
10: It was uh, clearly, I think you said the the flare across the bow. Uh, I was uh, shocked to hear the magnitude that Snap talked about this impact. They got it down by 13 percent. Uh, despite their user metrics continuing to inch higher. And so I think you really need to uh, uh, think about their comments, their negative outlook in two segments. First, in terms of Apple and some of their policies around ad tracking. I think uh, it first uh, piece that jumped out on that front is that when we talk to these companies, the social companies, they uh, despise Apple. They want to get away from Apple, and this is exactly the reason why they want to do that. Uh, They are going to navigate this and it's going to have some form of an impact on Facebook. It won't have an impact at Facebook and Twitter will not have an impact on Google just because the nature of how their ads are. And of course, the second piece was around this dynamic about the supply and advertisers pulling back during the holiday quarter. That one uh, was a little bit uh, perplexing to me, in part because. Uh, this supply issue has been around a long time, and why is now Snap talking about it? They did mention on the call last night that this was less of an impact, the, the uh, ad soft ad market, compared to the impact of the changes that Apple has made. So uh, the, the simple takeaway is this, is uh, we got a very clear read about what the expectations are, and I think we're going to see um, some uh, a lot of commentary from Facebook next week about the Apple policy changes uh, but I have, even though I am not a fan of what Facebook does to uh, the world's mental health, I think that shares are going to go higher. I think it was Jeff was talking about all this is bad news baked in. And uh, I don't think it could get much worse for Facebook. And I just want to end my thought with one thing, Carl, here yep. is if you want to anchor the, uh, the Facebook results in one metric, it's pretty easy to do. It's daily active users was up 7% last quarter, 8% the previous quarter. Before the pandemic, every quarter for the past, the three years previous, it was up 8%. This has been rock solid. If they keep DAUs going higher at 8%, 7%, something like that, investors are going to give them a pass. It doesn't matter what Facebook says, the stock is probably going higher on the print.
1: Huh. Well, I would add to that, Gene, the idea that Facebook has been pretty direct in telegraphing, look, this is going to be an issue for us, at least on the iOS side. I, I wonder, uh, compared to Snap, if you think Snap was, I don't know, maybe a little derelict and not guiding the street a little bit more ahead of this surprise from last night.
10: Yeah, yes, they will. And, and uh, I guess in Facebook's case, they've talked about other times when, you know, be careful about, for example, some of the policy changes in Europe uh, around, uh, not it was an ad tracking, but uh, around privacy and the impact on what that could be on their business, and, and every time they've done that, they've just powered right through it because, you know, they are the only global directory, they're the only reach that advertisers can get to, and so uh, I think that, uh, yes, uh, Snap probably could have done a little bit better of a job uh, uh, telegraphing this. I think that uh, there's going to be some uh, messiness around the language, around the guidance with Facebook, undoubtedly. Uh, And then they're going to, of course, uh, marinate the quarter uh, with a heavy dose of the metaverse, which (laughs) I think will probably get everyone uh, over the top to move the stock higher in the near term. Hey, Gene, it's Jeff Mills. Quick question for you. So we're obviously talking
4: about the impact on Snap, Facebook, but then throw Twitter in there. So Snap had an advantage because they were really executing on direct response ads Twitter hasn't done a great job of that yet. So I wonder if you're buying the narrative that Twitter is probably most insulated from what's going on just because that's such a small part of their business and they haven't really succeeded in terms of of making that a major revenue driver.
10: Exactly. I think if you kind of line them all up, Twitter's uh, best position, most insulated. You know, there is some dynamic around just the broader ad market. Of course, Google is direct advertising. They don't have the the Apple privacy changes uh, or tracking policies to navigate. But I think if you put it all together, probably Twitter is uh, is best position going into the print related to, at least related to kind of the tone and the outlook. Again, I think that Facebook, if you just add up everything that's been said over the last uh, month and a half, it, it is pretty bad. And usually when a lot of bad things uh, have been said before a print, it gets priced in.
1: It's going to be a great week. Uh, fun to watch. Uh, Gene, have a good weekend. Thanks. Thank Uh, you, Munster. Let's trade this, Mike. uh, Give me some of your favorites and what would you avoid?
9: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think we talked about this in the last half hour and obviously Jeff mentioned it, too. I mean, at at 24 times under any other circumstances, I mean, you'd have to say that on a fundamental basis and and based on their growth rates that Facebook uh, looks cheap. Uh, I've liked Microsoft. I continue to, despite the valuation. If you don't sell it, uh, as is often said, then essentially you're buying it right here. So I think you can stick with that. I still like uh, Amazon. Um, you know, but, uh, of course, the issue with Facebook is is one of taste. You know, in other words, you have to hold your nose to buy it when you consider some of the uh, issues that surround the company. But I, I do think all of that sort of has already been priced, in. the market is uh, probably going to hold its nose from here on in.
1: Interesting. Guys, uh, Kramer is uh, laying out his playbook heading into next week's Earnings Bonanza. You can check out what's on his radar, of course, in the CNBC Investing Club newsletter. Sign up right now at CNBC.com backslash investing club or just use the QR code on your screen. We are just getting started on this special edition of Fast Money. Up next, we will following a developing story in the cybersecurity world, hackers taking aim on the U.S. in a very big way. We'll tell you about the new threat emerging and the companies on the front lines of the fight to protect your data. Plus, Bitcoin's record-breaking week, the cryptocurrency soars to a new all-time high. One crypto pro says this run is just getting started. Why, she does see 100K in the cards by New Year's. You're watching a special edition of Fast Money live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. We're back after this. Welcome back. We're following a developing story in the cybersecurity world. A new and serious threat may be emerging. Let's get right to Eamon Javers with details. Hi, Eamon.
11: Hi, Carl. It's a crazy situation right now, and American companies and government agencies should really pay attention to this flare-up that we're seeing on the dark web at this hour because of the risk of increased hacking activity. It all started now earlier this week when the U.S. government reportedly launched a coordinated attempt to bring down the servers of that ransomware group, R Evil, which was behind that large beef hack uh, that we saw earlier this year. But today, the Conti hacking group, which is believed to operate out of Russia, has issued an epic screed against the U.S government in response to that. The hackers essentially are complaining that it's unfair and illegal to hack them. In their post, the group says, first, an attack against some servers, which the U.S. security attributes to our evil, is another reminder of what we all know, the unilateral, extraterritorial, and bandit-mugging behavior of the United States in world affairs. Now, they also complain that the people who launched the campaign against our evil are, quote, vampires drunken and intoxicated by impunity and blood. And another ransomware gang, or whoever's operating their blog right now called Groove, is calling for all hackers to unite and fight the United States. Their post urges fellow hackers to stop competing and unite to destroy the state sector of the USA to show who's the boss on the Internet. Carl, so an emerging situation here, a lot of murkiness, and you always have to take all these things with a bit of a grain of salt, given that these are hackers, they're known criminals and known liars, but it seems like there could be some action over the weekend. So if you run a server, you might want to t- take an eye and keep an eye on it and make sure that uh, you're safe over the weekend. Carl?
1: Eamon, uh, your beat continues to be strange and chilling. That's our Eamon Javers. Appreciate that. Uh, Steve, all right. So uh, assuming we could potentially be looking at new episodes of at least uh, uh, attempted hacking, um, how does this play into, into names we can trade?
7: Yeah, so, so to break it down, let's start off w- with this. If it's going to be government hacks, Palantir, the lion's share of Palantir's revenues come from government contracts. This is a stock that actually has, has moved sideways, really hasn't broken out. But I, w- I, would, I would think that they have first mover on a lot of these government initiatives. Having said that, CrowdStrike is a crowd favorite. It's up about 33% year date. 23% of that is in the last two weeks. So this one is definitely in, in everyone's purview. But, but Carl, when you look at these names, the name that sticks out the most is Palo Alto. And this one is based on, by multiples in revenues, it exceeds its its, uh, its competition. It's a huge subscription-based business, normalized earnings, Subscriptions are over three billion dollars. So we went from years ago with all these attacks never moving the needle to now they're actually they're actually moving the needle in some of these stocks. So those are the three names that I would play.
1: Yeah, Jeff, I was going to say the, the correlation between uh, stories in the news and the share price it's gotten, it's gotten more positive over time, right?
4: Yeah, and I guess it probably should. I just love how the hackers don't want to be hacked. That made me laugh. Um, But just to put some numbers to the industry as a whole, because these stocks aren't cheap, right? But we're seeing more and more. This is the single biggest threat to the country, to corporate America. We have all of these high-profile breaches ransomware has cost companies something like $20 billion in 2020. And it's not just the big companies. I think you have 70% of cyber attacks now on small and mid-sized businesses, and you still only have about 10% of companies' IT spend on cybersecurity. So there is runway for these names, even though they are expensive. And I have a lot of the same names on my list. You have a CrowdStrike. They have great recurring revenues. They have improving cash flow metrics. So those are things you want to see for a stock that is priced to perfection, more or less, at this point. Palantir, I agree. At its core, cyber risk is a data issue. So to be able to look at your network in real time, that's something that Palantir gives their customers the ability to do. Uh, Steve mentioned Palo Alto. I think a company with a similar valuation, uh, FireEye, I guess not FireEye, any, any more Mandiant, You know, they just completed the recent divestiture uh, of some of their non-core businesses. Really, that focus on SaaS, that focus on consulting, I think it makes that business a little bit more attractive. So not cheap across the board, but at the same time, I think you do have runway if you can be patient enough.
1: Yeah. Mike, how how do you... Uh, look at the space in terms of the pretend the runway, the white space that they have. Are you looking for firms that are tailored to large enterprise where they're high value targets or more of the small, and medium sized businesses?
9: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, both the guys brought up some interesting things. I mean, CrowdStrike, I mean, for what it's worth, we're going to see probably something on, along the lines on 40 percent year on year revenue growth there. So, you know, one of the reasons that you see these, these what would otherwise seem like lofty valuations, obviously it's an in-demand space and they're demonstrating that they're attached to it. But, you know, the other important point, I think, that uh, Jeff made is the exposure of the small to mid-sized businesses. So, is that a solution that's going to uh, benefit, obviously, the cybersecurity companies like some of the aforementioned? I think it will. But it could also potentially just continue to bolster, uh, obviously, one of the fastest growing business sectors as it stands, which is cloud. Because if you run a smaller, mid-sized business and you see this as a potential threat, you can either try to face that threat yourself or you can try to enlist some service providers to help you out and maybe offload some of the responsibility of running those servers and things yourself. And that obviously would support the big cloud providers. And now we're talking about uh, AWS, which would obviously be feeding into Amazon and Microsoft. So I see this as basically a continued pressure to get smaller and mid-sized businesses to migrate to the cloud uh, as quickly as they can, because I think this is obviously going to scare a lot of those businesses. They don't want those kinds of disruptions, and they probably want to have a big partner on the technology side to help them through it.
1: That's interesting. Uh, guy's still ahead. A very bold call on Bitcoin. One crypto pro sees Bitcoin hitting 100K in the next two months. We're going to press her on that call. And then later, trading the turnaround. China tech rallying this week. One of our traders is, in fact, buying that bounce. We'll break that, uh, down that trade when this special edition of Fast Money comes back. Welcome back to this special edition of Fast Money. We are closing the books on an historic week for crypto. The first Bitcoin futures ETF made its big debut. The ProShares Bitcoin strategy ETF dropped 5% since Tuesday's launch. Meanwhile, Bitcoin itself breaking out to a new all-time high before pulling back a bit. Our next guest believes there is enough excitement to drive the cryptocurrency to the $100,000 mark later this year. Let's bring in Melton Demiris, chief strategy officer at CoinShares. Meltem, it's great to see you again. Happy Friday.
12: Happy Friday. Happy to be back.
1: I'd love to talk to you about what's what's so magic about 100,000, because you're not the first person to put that year end target on the books.
12: Absolutely. I'm going to have to give credit to Tom Lee at Funstrat. I think he was probably the first one to come on air and give us the 100K target. But look, it's a nice round number. And I think, again, breaking six figures is a historic milestone for Bitcoin. Uh, we had a historic week in Bitcoin, over a billion dollars traded in the first 24 hours of this ETF being launched. And again, I think everyone's been talking about the ETF for ages and ages, not a spot ETF, but I think again, allocators are very seriously looking at Bitcoin and everyone wants to get off zero. Um, So this ETF is a great new channel where allocators can easily access this this new asset class.
1: Yeah, for a while, we were talking about uh, mind share, market share between Bitcoin and Ether. Uh, We're coming off gold, having its best weeks since since August, finally getting what appears to be a bit of the inflation trade uh, play. Do you sense that there will be more competition for Bitcoin to accomplish things that it accomplishes?
12: Look, I think that um, one of the things we're starting to see is the crypto sector matures, right? We used to talk only about cryptocurrencies on this program a year ago. Now we have over $100 billion of market cap in publicly listed equities that are crypto pure plays, including companies like Coinbase, but also my company CoinShares and a number of others. There are miners, there are exchanges, there are financial services companies, so we have public equities. And we have now a greater number of crypto assets that have sizable market cap, a lot of liquidity. But Bitcoin really is very unique in the pantheon of crypto assets. Bitcoin has very unique properties that make it a perfect antidote to chaos in your portfolio. And if we look at what's happening around the world right now, if we look at how investors are thinking about portfolio construction and allocating long-term in this environment, People are very concerned about risk. People are very concerned about the political environment, the social environment. So I think for many investors, Bitcoin really is very unique and it occupies a special uh, place in the portfolio. And it means actually that I think Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, other assets are complementary. But an allocation to Bitcoin, in my view, is a must for any investor.
7: also thank you for joining us if i give you a caveat that you can't answer this question with bitcoin uh, what else would you if you wanted the exposure what else would you buy i bought the etf uh this week for myself just to get a little bit of exposure there but would you go with a marathon or would you go with something that's up 300 percent, like a marathon or the etf once again How do you play Bitcoin if you don't want to buy it directly for the viewers?
12: Yeah, great question. And this is something we talk about often. I think a great play is buying the ETF. Obviously, it's a simple product wrapper. It's easy to understand. But just know that there's a very sizable carrying cost there. Another option is equity, actually buying an equities index. Um, we offer one in Europe that trades under the ticker block. It's about $1 billion in market cap. It's an equities ETF. I apologize, I'm outside and there's a car <laughs> alarm going off. Um, and then another way to play this, we're getting some, some local color here. Um, another way to play this as well, I think, is, is buying a market cap weighted basket. So there are a number of issuers in the US who offer trust product that has a, a market-weighted basket. So that gives you exposure to not just Bitcoin, but a number of other um, a number of other assets in the crypto space that you can buy easily through an existing brokerage account. So again, I think the fact that this asset class is no longer just cryptocurrencies, but also equities as well, is really promising. And there are a whole slate of IPOs and facts coming to market in the next three to six months that are con- going to continue to give investors a great entry point into this trade.
1: Melton, our thanks, as always. Great to see you. Have a good weekend.
12: Thanks. See Milton you guys
1: soon. Uh, Mike, were you impressed with the action in this space this week?
9: Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of hard not to be, right? And and one of the things that uh, we continue to see is that when you have increased evidence of adoption, that is going to be supportive of this space. And and you obviously see that in the price action. I think the little bit of the drop that we saw at the tail end of the week Uh, notwithstanding. That said, you know, she did make an important point about the carry. And it's one of those things that I'm not that crazy about is when you start buying a product where, you know, people who can essentially try to play the arb, which is to sell the overvalued asset and buy the undervalued one uh, just one up. uh, That part of it is is not so attractive to me. And it's one of the reasons why if you have significant carry in something like the ETF, I might be inclined uh, to avoid it. Although I will say That when you get a lot of participants doing that, you can actually create a little bit of a squeeze so it can actually expand (laughs) before it
1: contracts. Right. Fascinating. Uh, Guys, still to come, uh, China tech stocks are making a big comeback. The K-Web ETF climbed nearly 9% this month. Is that the all clear for that beaten down trade? Later on, we're going to dive into energy. Oil prices surging to a fresh seven-year high. Halima Croft of RBC will tell us where she sees prices headed next. You are watching a special edition of Fast Money, live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. We're back after this. Welcome back. Chinese stocks making a big comeback. Names like Alibaba, Baidu, JD.com. Up double digits in October, and that, course, follows months of pain for those names. Is this turnaround for real? Let's get to Seema Modi with a look at what's next. Hi, Seema.
13: Hey, Carl. A strong rebound for sure. KWeb ETF gaining about 5 percent, its third positive week in a row. And part of the thesis has been based on valuations. Morgan Stanley reiterating its outperform rating on Pinduoduo, saying the market might have overpenalized the stock on concerns about an unfavorable regulatory environment, and says its valuation does look more attractive. Now, other Chinese tech names like Baidu, Alibaba, JD.com have seen their stock prices jump around 15 to 20 percent this month, but are still trading at a discount to their historical average. Alibaba, for example, now at 21 times earnings, which is lower than its five year average of 36 times and cheaper than Facebook, Amazon and Alphabet. Valuation, though, is only one part of an investment thesis. What Chinese regulators could do next, still unknown. There are certain names experts say could still thrive in an environment where we see more policy changes. Benchmark betting on Baidu, pointing out that its recent investments being in line with where the government there sees opportunity. One example being artificial intelligence. There's also a report earlier this week that China is considering making more data available to search engines, which analysts say could bode well for Baidu, which is often dubbed the Google of China. Carl.
1: to uh, appreciate that. Seema Modi. Uh, let's trade it. Jeff, um, how many mornings did we walk into the office to see a slew of weird uh, regulatory crackdown headlines? Do you think this is over?
4: Many mornings. And no, I don't think it's over. You know, I think everybody in the West made this mistake over the past number of years to think that China's plan was to kind of fully westernize and become us. You know, I I don't think that was ever the idea. You know, they were smart, they leveraged technology, but, you know, they have their own culture and that's how they're going to proceed. And I think that's going to be reflected in regulatory policy going forward. And you're going to have some benefit from government investment in certain areas that they think are important. But I think more government intervention means less innovation so i think that's going to be with us for a long time i think you're going to have challenges on even the way we get exposure to certain Chinese companies. I think about the variable interest entity structure, VIEs you hear everybody talking about. Alibaba is a structure like that. So what happens when you're no longer to get, no longer able to get exposure? Uh, in terms of what we're doing, I think it has to be nuanced because this is so hard to predict. So first, even after a, a 25% sell-off or so in broad Chinese equities, they're not particularly cheap from an absolute standpoint. That said, Chinese internet stocks, 40% of the overall Chinese stock market, uh, they look like they're stabilizing around long-term support. So I don't think you have to run out of the building like it's on fire. So what we're doing in portfolios for clients in emerging markets, number one, Chinese exposure should be below benchmark. I think that's clear. And we're doing that not only with Chinese equities, but also with Chinese revenue exposure kind of across the board, even for U.S. companies. I think reducing the market cap, in china is a good idea you kind of stay out of the crosshairs of the ccp potentially an additional regulatory issue so these are the things that we're trying to do because we don't know exactly how things are going to play out but we want to reduce some of the largest risks we see
1: oh that's interesting steve uh, morgan stanley this morning the trading desk did say look some of the turmoil regarding the snap social media model might allow uh, china internet to get a little love where it hasn't happened the last few weeks
7: you know it's it, when I look at these charts carl when when uh, when Sema was doing the report it, there's so many times that you could have thought you were buying the bottom and as to your point, the way you introduced it to to Jeff, how many mornings did you come in hearing the you know a new weird, odd headline here so i don't know if we're through that, but I think the investor is getting a little impatient and wants to Find some sort of outsized return. So a name like JD looks like it's breaking above all its moving averages. That one looks okay, but I'm going to take this as a as an offshoot. If we think that the bottom has been reached in China Tech, then I think you have to use that to buy the casino plays. Not that they have anything directly to do with each other, other than there's might be an all clear. So if you buy a Las Vegas that's down. over 35% or a win that's down over 25%, you could get both of those things involved and get those real bounces.
1: I like that, too. Uh, Guys, still to come this this evening, pain at the pump, oil popping to that fresh seven-year high. What impact will that have on gas prices? We're going to break that down ahead. First, though, we're going to tackle your questions. You can tweet us at CNBC Fast Money, and we just might read your answer on air. We're back right after this. Welcome back. We're coming up at the top of the hour. Let's get to Kelly Evans with a look at what's ahead on the news. Hey, Kelly.
0: Good evening, Carl. Thanks so much. Coming up in just a few minutes on the news, we will have the very latest on the deadly tragedy rocking Hollywood. Alec Baldwin killed a cinematographer and wounded the director with a prop gun on a New Mexico film set. An investigation now underway. We'll talk to a Hollywood prop weapons expert about how this could have happened. Plus, the very latest in the Gabby Petito case. There's new information tonight, what the laundry family attorney says the parents knew about Brian's state of mind days before Gabby's body was found. Plus, the race to get ahead with artificial intelligence, the U.S. taking on China in a battle for the future, one of the foremost AI experts in the world weighs in. All that when the news begins in just a couple of minutes' time, Carl. All
1: right, Cal, we'll see you then. Uh, time to tackle some viewer questions. First up, there's a question on Nike.
10: Good evening. My name is Ray and I live in New York. I have a question for the Fast Money panel regarding Nike. Is it a buy, sell, or hold considering the current and future supply chain issues? Thank you for taking my call.
1: Jeff, we were just talking about some of those pressures. What do you how do you think it applies to NKE?
4: Yes, I think it's at least a hold here, if not a buy. You know, they've had some troubles recently with the supply chain. I think that's relatively well known in the market at this point. There's a risk that it goes on longer than a couple of quarters. But I think in a lot of ways, the recent price action has reflected that. And I talked a little bit about the macro environment, too, in that I think the style bias kind of across the market, but within retail, is going to be driven toward some of these Uh, growth stories. I think Nike fits the bill there. And I also think the consumer is going to be really strong. If if you listen to Amex earnings report, I think kind of across the board, it points to a strong consumer. So, you know, Nike was 16% off its highs. Now it has bounced really nicely off of rising support. So I I think you can play it higher here.
1: Yeah. uh, Mike, I think it was about 10 days ago, Goldman says healthy industry backdrop, high cash, Valuation points to share price upside, sourcing concerns likely priced in. They initiate with the buy 172. What did you think?
9: Yeah, I mean, we also have to just talk about management. I mean, they've really been doing a great job for the past several years. And I think it's really important just, in, you know, obviously I think it's important for Nike, which I think continues to execute. Obviously the demand is there, but I also think it's important just as an investor generally that we have to be able to see past some of these short-term supply issues and not get a little bit too caught up in it. We might learn that it does create some interim pressures, but as long as the demand for their products are there and we can see out the other end of this, then I think the companies that are executing on their business plans, Nike most definitely has. And when they haven't, they've been quick to reverse it, I should say. So uh, I do like Nike on the upside here.
1: Next up, uh, Sam has a question on GM.
5: Hello, my name is Sam, and my question is, uh, what are your thoughts on GM with the recent news of GM doubling their annual
4: revenue by 2030, and if you think this stock is a good long-term investment to make?
1: Steve, what a week it's been for the autos. I mean, you would not know about the supply chain pressure if you look at, say, Tesla's share price this week.
7: It, it, true. And, and, you know, when you look at Tesla, they have so many uh, different angles that they can improve profitability that you, you can't compare that with a GM. A GM would love to be compared to, to a Tesla and get sort of that multiple. But to address Sam's question, there's a lot of things that could happen between now and 2030 Stock is up 38% year-to-date. Ford is grossly outperformed GM. But if you're just looking uh, through a microcosm of just GM, I would say that it still is a good investment. I do believe they're not getting credit for their autonomous drive, their technology package, their suite of software. I do believe that the best days are yet ahead for GM.
1: All right, guys. Speaking of autos, up next, sticker shock. Uh, check out our image of the night. You are reading this one correctly. Seven fifty-nine a gallon. We're gonna break down the pain of the pump when fast money comes back. Welcome back to this special edition of Fast Money. Check out the big move in oil this week. Crude has been on a tear. Nine straight weekly gains, and that is pressuring prices at the pump. Let's get to CNBC's Pippa Stevens with the crude realities. Hey, Pippa.
14: Hey, Carl. Well, oil's blistering rally showing no signs of slowing. WTI just wrapped up its ninth straight week of gains, now up more than 70% year-to-date. U.S. oil broke above 84 bucks this week for the first time in seven years, and that means pain at the pump for consumers. The national average four gallon of gas is also at a seven-year high, hitting $3.37 today. That's up 18 cents in the last month and $1.21 in the last year. In some places, Americans are paying much more. In California's Mono County, the average stands at $5.30. And then take a look at this. One gas station in Big Sur hit $7.59. Although the station's remote location means it frequently charges well above the national average. But if you thought some relief could be coming, don't hold your breath. Take a listen to what President Biden said last night at CNN's town hall.
8: My guess is you'll start to see gas prices come down as we get by and going into the winter. I mean, excuse me, into next year in 2022. I don't see anything that's going to happen in the meantime that's going to significantly reduce gas prices.
14: He pointed to OPEC and its allies withholding barrels from the market as fueling the price surge. Should note, though, that here in the U.S., oil production is nearly two million barrels below pre-pandemic levels. But with winter coming and some places short on fuel, analysts are calling for even higher oil, including topping $100. And that means, Carl, more pain at the pump for consumers.
1: But we will see. Uh, Thank you. Let's trade this, uh, Mike. I wonder, you know, the market's notoriously intolerant of crude at levels just north of here. Is your spidey sense going off that a top is approaching?
9: Uh, I don't know if it's uh, approaching rapidly, but there is one thing for sure. The United States was just recently, believe it or not, the world's largest oil producer, actually surpassing Saudi Arabia. And, of course, when oil prices go up, that spurs E&P work, and we could actually start to see those production numbers increase. And if they do, that's going to bring down the price of oil. It just takes a little bit of time to flow through the system, so to speak.
1: I think it was Schlumberger today, guys, that said North American capital spending growth to increase about 20 percent on the conference call. Jeff, I wonder, do you think finally these producers uh, are going to say maybe it's worth spending a couple dollars on investment?
4: Yeah, I think a couple of dollars. I do think they're going to be cautious just given what happened kind of throughout the last boom-bust cycle. Uh, but yes, I do think spending is going to increase. Uh, I, I do think getting back to the price of the pump issue, what that means for the consumer. So Mike said it, overall economy probably fine because we're a net producer, Uh, But ultimately, this probably starts to bleed into the consumer. I think for now, they're in good shape. We always talk about the excess savings and the pent-up demand that we do have. So I think that that probably holds true through at least the beginning of next year. But when we talked about retail, that's why I would rather be in a Nike or a Lulu, kind of those higher-end brands versus maybe a cheaper Kohl's or Gap. Those valuations have come way down. But I prefer the higher-end just because of these dynamics that might play out as we move into 2022.
1: Let's talk a bit more about where energy prices may be headed. Joining us tonight, RBC Capital Markets Global Head of Commodity Strategy, Halima Croft, and a CNBC contributor. Hi, Halima. Good to see you. Good to see you, Carl. I, I, I wonder if you would argue that the world is not short on oil and that there are reasons to look at whether or not it's come too far.
0: Well, I think the big question, as you mentioned, U.S. shell production, I mean, shell production cannot be Superman in this situation. I mean, even if spending increases, you simply cannot ramp up quickly enough if we do have an energy crunch in winter. And the issue is, Carl, we may not be short of oil right now, but if we have an unseasonably cold winter and we have real issues on gas supply, if there is an increased demand for oil for substitution for power generation, then you're gonna have prices move materially higher. And so I actually think that President Biden is not necessarily correct in saying we're gonna get relief in winter, If it's a warm winter, sure. But if it's a cold winter, then I think prices can move a leg higher from here. Absolutely.
1: Um, Nat Gas, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Do we have three straight weeks down? And is that notable?
0: Um, I think it is notable. I do think, again, the question is going to be, what happens in winter now some of the softness was due to the fact that the russians have been very vocal saying that they're going to supply more gas into europe but we haven't really seen evidence to date yet that they are actually doing so the Gazprom had an auction this week no indications that they're going to be adding additional capacity into europe in november and so there are real questions about will russia make good on their promises to supply more gas into europe so again it's fine now in the shoulder season you go into winter, and if Russia cannot ramp up and you have other gas producers unable to meet demand, then you're gonna have not only natural gas prices rising, but again, oil will rise as well because of substitution requirements.
4: Hey, Halima, it's Jeff Mills. So seven years since oil last traded at these levels, but the one thing that sticks out to me is that a lot of the bellwether energy names really aren't trading at high. So when I think about XOM, Chevron, XOP, kind of well below pre-COVID highs. Do you feel like maybe there's a little bit of a catch-up there between the stocks and the commodity?
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly I'm not an equity analyst, but I think, you know, when we think about what happened, you know, seven years ago. I mean, I think a real difference is the question about we still are sitting on 4 million barrels of additional, you know, OPEC capacity. And I do think there kind of is a question mark in this market right now is, you know, will OPEC decide to put more barrels on this market and essentially cool this rally? When we had the Arab Spring situation, you know, and we had prices run up, you know, we were basically in a very, very thin spare capacity situation. What is different right now is, we do have these OPEC barrels sitting on the sidelines. The question just simply is, you know, will OPEC come to the rescue in the near term by putting more barrels on the market? Or do some producers potentially like higher prices because it lets them, you know, go on spending sprees, lets them rebuild their foreign exchange reserves? So the question is really what will OPEC do when they meet November 4th?
1: I think it was Goldman Halima uh, a couple days ago. If winter is one standard deviation colder than usual, Ah. tight supplies could cause nat gas to more than double oil prices to rise an additional five percent. Does that make sense to you?
0: No, I mean, that's what I was saying. I mean, I really do think this comes down to a call on what does winter look like? And again, there are real question marks over whether Russia can make good on their pledge to supply more gas into Europe. Do they want to supply more gas into Europe? Are they essentially trying to generate an energy crisis to force, for example, the German regulator to approve completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? So I do think there are real questions about if winter is cold, can we get enough energy into the key markets?
8: Halima,
1: thanks as always. Great weekend to you. Leigh Croft. Thank you. Uh, Steve, Jeff, Mike, great being with you guys tonight. Thanks for having me. At Does It Hear Us for us on a special edition of Fast Money, the news with Shepard Smith starts right now.
12: People today can spend half their lives over 50, so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Jenny!